We are in the book of James then, beginning in chapter 1. This morning we touched on Proverbs chapter 1, talked about the appeal of wisdom. Wisdom has appeal. There are things about wisdom that ought to draw us to develop wisdom in our lives and to learn and to grow and to be willing to be reproved and rebuked when necessary. In uh, Sunday morning service, we discussed the principle of uh, the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ from Hebrews chapter, we, we covered Hebrews 5 through 6. That's only a fraction of the distance I had intended on going with that. But my, my strategy there is going to be to just let the writer of Hebrews explain the sacrifice completely. And we're going to drive that principle into the ground that once Christ sacrificed himself for us and once we apply that sacrifice, that one sacrifice is enough to save at that moment and all the way through eternity. I don't jump out of Christ's hand. I don't lose the seal of the Spirit. And I don't have to repeat the sacrifice of Christ in order to be saved again and again and again and again. When Christ saves us, he saves us once for all eternity. And uh, that is, it is my hobby horse. It is my favorite doctrine of the Bible. Probably always will be. But uh, this evening I just want us to take a look at a few principles from the book of James. This may not be a long sermon. That uh, we'll go to James in chapter 1. We're only, we're going to cover verses 1 through 4 this evening. We're going to draw what principles we can out of this. Let's read that together. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. We're going to start a series on temptations, faith, patience, and perfection. And this is going to be where we begin. And as we do, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the challenge from James this evening as we embark on this topic. I ask that you'd help us to draw what we can from your word this evening. We pray for those who are ill and who are suffering within our church that you would give them physical comfort that you'd give them physical healing and uh, again pray for Aaron and Nikki please bring them back with energy and stamina Lord ready to jump back in and, and keep on going but thank you for their ministry for us and again please bless this time and we thank you for it in Jesus name amen so James is a half brother of Jesus Christ at some point, he put his faith in his own half-brother. So what, what's, a ha what's that? What, what are you talking about? Just, just, in case, just in case this is something you haven't heard or um, you're not familiar with, James, uh, Jesus is the son of the Virgin Mary. He was not born by the conventional matter, manner. He was placed in the womb by God, the Father. He was born without any human involvement. 
other than Mary bore him. Joseph then married his wife, Mary. And, well, he, I don't, did he marry her before, Joseph, before Jesus was born? That's what I was kind of thinking. Thank you. I guess I did. I've, in all these years, I've never thought about that. But She was impregnated by the father. He married her. She was, uh, she bore Jesus, and then Joseph and Mary continued to have children. There's a passage in the New Testament where Jesus is ministering, and he says, there's someone out, someone is out here, and they say, your, 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 your mother and your, and your siblings are out here looking for you. Jesus had brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters. They weren't divine, but they were half-brothers and sisters. So there was... Mary was not a virgin perpetually. She's not a virgin now. She is, um, that's one of the dogmas that is disproven easily just by, just by reading scripture. So he's a half-brother of Jesus Christ. He trusted, trusted Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. That gives us our audience. He's talking to the dispersion, the men and women and children who have been sent out who have been scattered by God by the persecution of the time. To summarize the book of James, I believe as I've, as I've read through this in preparation for this series, the epistle of, and this, I'll just say the epistle of James has always been uncomfortable, used to be uncomfortable for me for these reasons. The epistle of James offers a challenge to those who would rest in the sufficiency of, of their mere faith to offer evidence of their new birth. Well, I'm saved, and that's all that matters. It doesn't, and what, he's, what, you, what we say in that often is, we hear this from people, I'm saved, and it doesn't matter what I do after that. I'm saved. It's an uncomfortable book for those whose life is not marked by submission and obedience to their conscience or the law of Christ. But it's reassuring to those whose life is marked by those qualities. What James does is he, he drives it home. Faith is accompanied by works. True faith is accompanied by works. Works is evidence of faith. Dovetailing with what we talked about in Sunday morning service here, he's not saying works add to salvation. He's not saying works complement salvation he's saying works are evidence of salvation that's what he's saying if you claim to be saved your life ought to reflect it taken in the context of the rest of the new testament the letter's not actually a challenge to the gospel of faith alone some people believe that but it's not i believe martin luther believed that that james was probably not even supposed to be in the Bible because it challenged the idea of living by faith alone. But it's rather a supplement to the gospel. Faith saves you and works confirm and reaffirm your salvation. Saying you have faith is not enough. You must prove that you have faith for your own benefit and the benefit of others who are watching your life. Others who are seeking a reason to trust in this God you claim to serve. And saying that it's it's something you prove for your own benefit. Oh my goodness! If you're living living with a guilty conscience throughout all life, you're just living crippled, spiritually crippled. You can't serve God 
with complete eagerness and readiness because you're just not sure in your own heart, am I really, really, am I really saved? It, when you're living in disobedience to God, it brings that big fat question mark. Am I really saved? And yes, you need to settle that. You need to settle that. But then that's part of the part of the reason, okay, my life doesn't seem to reflect what Jesus teaches. Is there a reason for that? And I'm not trying to take away anybody's assurance of their genuine salvation, but James challenges all of us to look at our lives and say, hey, am I really, am I really in it or not? Am I really saved or not? And if I am, it's not a problem. Now, not today. I read the book of James, and it's a, just, it's a great encouragement. Because I know that I am. I don't want this to sound like a carnal or a physical effort, but I'm doing the best I can to obey Jesus in whatever he asks me to do. So that, that serves as a reassurance of your salvation, too. So the first issue James addresses in this book is wisdom in the midst of temptation. Wisdom in the midst of temptation. Starting in verse 1 again, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now let's let's uh, pick that apart a little bit. Count it all joy. He doesn't necessarily, again, we're talking about persecution. We don't know persecution in this country the way they know persecution overseas or in Muslim countries or in, in India or in China or in deep Africa. We don't, know te- we don't know persecution like that. We don't even know persecution like they have in Canada right now where they have been blatantly imprisoning pastors for defying the order to, you know, you shut down, uh, you don't hold services during this pandemic, we're the ones in charge, the government says we're the ones in charge and we're making this decision for you. And the challenges they had in California during the pandemic as well, where one of our uh, more well-known pastors in the country, he said, bring it on. (laughs) He literally said, bring it on. He said, I've never had a prison ministry before. (laughs) Go ahead and send me to prison, bring it on. And uh, you keep, if you keep, I do, I do listen to pastors. I do watch pastors on TV. I'm very careful about who I listen to. But one pastor, I just watched him this morning, he said, we're done with the government telling us we can't sing. We can't gather together. We can't pray. We can't, as the word he said was chant. We, they, they can't shout because you're sending all these particles into the air and you might cause someone else to get sick. Remember, that was one of the big deals in the last couple of years. No more. No more. You know, I think, uh, you know the term jinx, I don't want to jinx it. I do think that there's, I think we're pretty much past all that now. But we don't know persecution here in this town like many people do or in this church. We really don't. These people knew persecution. And they had a certain, a certain Pharisee at one point who was 
tasked with tracking down and killing Christians. This man ended up converting and becoming one of the greatest apostles, uh, Paul, the apostle. God took this man and turned him 180 degrees right around, and then he started getting persecuted, death threats and whippings and lashings. At one point, he describes a man who went to the third heaven, not the sky, not space, but heaven, heaven, and saw things that he couldn't mention, that weren't, you know, weren't mentionable. And then eventually he said, okay, it was me. <laughs> As he was writing, he's all right, it was me. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to build himself up. But he had been beaten to the point of death. And he was, you know, he went there and then he came back. Um, we don't know persecution like these people do. So we read, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Fall into means to happen upon. These things aren't things where we're not talking about things. And things that we walk into, yes, we need to. No, let me pull that back. We're not talking about things we walk into. We're talking about things that happen to us. It's a passive thing. Count it all joy when you light upon or become surrounded with diverse temptations. Diverse could be translated as motley, you know, just bleh, insane Temptations. And temptations means a putting to proof by experiment in good or experience in evil. Or just a solicitation to evil. Count it all joy. doesn't mean I'm happy that this is happening to me. It means I'm happy that I'm going to learn something from this and God's going to benefit me in this situation. That's why I wonder about Joseph. Back in the Old Testament, the, the patriarch Joseph, when he was in, when he was in that well, and when he experienced life with Potiphar, when he experienced life in the prison, when he experienced life as Pharaoh's number two man, I wonder during all that time how it was that this young man. We don't have any record of him going off the rails. I really do believe that there was a unique insight given to this young man who said, God's working something out here. I don't know what, but God's working something out. So when we meet temptations, we have this assurance that Joseph had that God's working something out in this. And I just need to, I need to be wise, and I need to be patient, prayerful. I need to talk to people. I need to get counsel. But I need to trust that God is going to make happen in me what he wants. That's the big thing I really believe is he wants to change something in us. That's the reason he tests us. There's a difference. Let me just put it this way first. Mankind is provoked by the usual suspects, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We know it by heart, backwards and forwards. The world we live in, the flesh we live in, and the devil who is always watching. He's not omnipotent, and neither are his demons, but they're very intelligent, very well studied. The demons don't need to read your mind to know what it is that'll get your attention or, or, or trip you up because they've been studying humanity for centuries. They've been studying us for millennia. They understand humanity. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. And 
So Satan understands us. The demons understand us. There's a difference, again, between testing and tempting. And uh, this is something that can be really expanded upon, but I want to just give you a basic understanding of this right now. Satan tempts us, but God tests us. There's a difference. God tempteth, God is not tempted of evil, neither tempteth he any man. Look that up in your, if you have a good concordance, look up that word. That's in James. That's in James as well. It's down the road. We'll get there. <laughs> Thank you. I, I do appreciate that. Um, he says he's not tempted of evil, neither tempteth he any. Oh, my goodness. Verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Right under my nose, and I missed it. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty typical. Um, Satan chose, he tempted Job to curse God to his face. That was Satan's job. Satan's objective was to get this. He had a wager with God. I can make him curse you to your face. And in that, and by the way, I want to study the book of Job next after I'm done with Proverbs because I don't understand that book. But having gone through some difficulties in life, I think I can get a better handle on it than before. I just listened through it in my Bible reading and I'm, the lights were coming on everywhere. Ah, I get it now. I get it. Because I can't wait to get done with Proverbs, get over to Job, and start picking that apart. Sit down and, I mean, within two or three days' time, I had listened through that whole book. And when you, when you read it all together, it forms one complete story in your head. You can see where he starts here and where he ends here, Job. And you're like, oh. Let me just touch on this and then I'll get back to the subject. At one point, Job said, um, you know, he was saying things like, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? He was, his friends were trying to give him counsel that was mingled with deceit. They didn't understand how God works. And at, at the beginning, Job is pretty humble. And then at, at the end, right before God steps in, he's, all these people, these men have made their appeals to him. And Job says, I am righteous. I have done nothing wrong and I will not change my mind. And that was the end of it for him. And then that fourth guy that was sitting there listen, listening, he chimed in and said, let me tell you what I think. He was the most correct out of all four of those false friends of his. All, those other three false friends and then there was him. And when Job turned around repented, God healed him, God restored him, God restored his property. He prayed for those three false friends. He didn't pray for the fourth guy. The fourth guy was right. God said to these other three false friends, you guys did wrong by Job here. But that's just a preview. That's a really rough outline. Satan tempted Job. Now, Job didn't understand. We know Satan didn't have... Or, Job had no idea, his three false friends had no idea, his wife had no idea that it was Satan who was making all of that happen. So while Satan is working on Job, God's intent in all... See, God doesn't need to make anything evil happen. All he needs to do is take his hands off 
this whole operation, and it'll go bananas. When the tribulation occurs, when it comes, he who, he who restrains will, will, will restrain, the Holy Spirit restrains through, through the believer, through believers around the world, restrains the evil in the world. And when we're taken away in the rapture, then that roadblock to Satan is gone. And it's going to be pandemonium. It's just going to be wild. But uh, so God's not tempting Job. Satan is. And what God is doing, that temptation is God's letting it happen. He's just grinning and maybe, maybe snickering a little bit at you know Satan and if he only knew what he was doing. Um, he was using Satan to bring Job to a place of humility. He was, he, was, he was using Satan to bring Job to a place where he kind of, he really knew what was in his own heart. He was no more righteous than anyone else. Even though he had all of the, he was keeping the law as he understood it, he was no more righteous than any other human being. And there were, you know, and there, there are a lot of ins and outs of that. All I'm saying is Satan tempted Job. God tested him through that temptation. And tried him to make him a better person. Satan tempted Peter to deny Christ on the night of the crucifixion. And he did. Peter denied him three times. But God was testing Peter to reveal his own personal inadequacy apart from Christ. Eventually restore him to fellowship with Christ. And eventually he became a man resting in the power of Christ alone for his life and survival. You see what happened. On Pentecost, Peter, Peter had to have his pride destroyed before God could even use him the way he wanted to. He's, I, I will not let you die, Lord. And even if you do go to die, I'll go with you. And Jesus knew, no. But eventually he did. He was crucified. Uh, tradition and history tells us Traditionally, he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the way Christ was crucified. Satan tempts us to forsake a life of holiness in favor of envy and unfaithfulness and in this country, instant gratification. But God is testing us to teach us to lean upon him for our true and vital needs in life. He wants us to, you know, we lose um, possessions and we lose friends and we lose our health and we lose our opportunities and we lose our promotions and we lose our uh, source of income. And we lose these things because God wants to replace them with something better. So every time Satan tempts us, remember that God is using it as a test. He wants something great out of you and greater out of you than where you, he wants you to improve and to grow and mature. So we count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations because we know that verse 3, the trying of our faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. 
I used to ask a question. Why does God test our, faith, our, our patience? I'm gonna, I will go ahead and elaborate on that in a moment. Why does he test our faith was the question I always used to ask. Knowing this, verse 3, we can be assured of God's intent within our testing. The trying of our faith. Our faith is our persuasion in God. Our conviction, our reliance, our fidelity, our faithfulness. It's our trust, it's our belief in God and His goodness. The trying of that faith worketh or accomplisheth or finisheth patience. Patience is what? It is endurance. The trying of our faith worketh patience. What is this whole idea of trying our faith? Faith is, chapter 11 of Hebrews, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. God promises something to us, and now we have to wait for it. We wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. What are we doing during that whole time? We've got either one of two choices. Either we can be fussy and impatient, or... Just trust and trust and trust and trust and trust. And eventually, God brings to pass what he said he'd bring to pass. In Hebrews, we see that many, many died never seeing the promises fulfilled. With me, God takes and puts me in a situation where I expect something to happen. And I'm sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then the moment I'm fed up with it, throw up my hands and start walking away, then it happens. I knew it. <laughs> I, I try to take advantage of that sometimes. But when I try to take advantage of it, it usually doesn't work. But that's the way he's been working in me. I think that's the way he works with us too, is all of us is. He stretches, he's stretching our faith. He's strengthening it. He's teaching us how to wait and how to be patient. The trying of our faith worketh patience. God desires endurance on our parts. Why does he test our faith would be the wrong question. The real question would be, how does he test our faith? Faith is trusting God to do for us and provide for us that which we do not possess, we cannot see, that which we desire to have, which God has promised for us. Trusting God to do for us what he has not yet fulfilled on our behalf. It's waiting for him to fulfill his word to us, having no perception whatsoever of how he could ever accomplish it. So then when he does accomplish it, and we see how he does accomplish it, we're amazed. And guess what? We don't get the credit. He gets the credit for it. The trying of our faith worketh patience. Abraham and Sarah had no conception of how in their old age they would ever have a child, but they were promised Isaac, and God was faithful to deliver that child. Aged, aged, both of them near 100. Joseph had no conception of how God would fulfill the dreams God gave him regarding his position of leadership down the road. What, you know, God's given me this dream. Why is he stalling on this? It's because he's preparing him. He's making him ready. He wants, he wants us to be people of character and faithfulness and reliability he wants us to be he wants us to be strong on the inside in our faith 
And then he'll put us in that position that he's preparing for us. The apostles had no conception while Christ was on this earth of the nature of what was going to happen to him. They had no concept of it. Yet witnessing all but Christ's return to reign, Jesus instilled confidence in them, the confidence in us as well, that one day he will return as he promised. So now the apostles have seen all this. We have a record of it. He was, they, he was talking about all of this, his betrayal, crucifixion, death, resurrection, and his glorification and his eventual return, and they didn't have any idea. They thought this is the guy who's going to free us from the shackles of Rome, and that's not what he was there for. He was there to free them from the shackles of their own sin. They witnessed everything but his return to reign. John, Peter, James, and John saw him in what could have been his glorified body. John was an eyewitness in the sense that Christ revealed to him all that was going to happen during this final seven years of earth's history. So faith is just trusting God to do for us and provide for us that which we cannot accomplish for ourselves. We have no, no concept of how he could ever accomplish it, but he does it anyway. He gets the glory, he gets the praise, and we get none of it. Turn to 2 Peter, if you would, please. Second Peter, chapter 3. Beginning in verse 2. 2 Peter 3, verse 2. Be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets, before by the holy prophets. Be mindful of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. There shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And we see that a lot today, don't we? People are... Number one, you see people taking advantage of situations like what's happening overseas right now. This is it. This is the signal. Jesus is coming tomorrow. It's a, it's a major thing going on over there. But that sort of thing's been going on for 2,000 years, and people, are, people have asked for 2,000 years, where's the promise of his coming? You've got people taking advantage of, it, of that situation, writing books and saying, this is it. See, here's all the evidence. This is it. This is it. There's even another date setter who's, who's popped up on the scene saying, 2022 is it. And he's already claimed that 2020 was it, and 2019 was it. And he got, he's a, I go to see, you see him on YouTube. He's got this whiteboard and he's doing all these numbers and stuff. And you just sit there and shake your head. Yeah. You, uh, <laughs> sir, stop that. <laughs> it, it's embarrassing. <laughs> it really, it's embarrassing. But, uh, you know, where's the promise of his coming? 
For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Verse 6, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word kept in store or reserved, unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of, of this one thing. Consider this. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. Here's the reason God hasn't come yet through Christ to return, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. Seeing then, this is all going to happen. Don't be deceived by the date setters. Don't be deceived by the sensationalists. Don't be deceived by the skeptics. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, wherein the heaven, excuse me, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So God is giving us, as he gave the apostles, that same faith right now. The trying of your faith worketh patience. Let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The question is, how does God test our faith? The answer is, God tests our faith by teaching us to wait for his perfect provision in his perfect timing. And that doesn't always match the timing that's in our mind, waiting for what we want, what he wants to give us. God tests our faith to bring us to an enduring, trusting, constant, and confident patience. And that makes us whole and complete and lacking no good thing as we continue in our journey toward progressive sanctification. We have positional sanctification the moment we trust Christ. We're made holy before God by the sacrifice of Christ. Progressive sanctification is our applying the principles of Christian living to our lives. Perfect sanctification is the day we're redeemed and taken up, given our glorified bodies. So it's a journey for us. Just wrap it up with these final thoughts. Our entire journey with God through Christ from beginning to end is found in both the existence as well as the quality and extent of our internal faith in Christ. Our journey with God is founded on the quality and extent of our internal faith in Christ. Without this faith in Christ, without it being tested and bolstered and reinforced, we can't experience the rest and reassurance and blessings that God holds for those of us who continually live in that faith. So to wrap it up, God uses testing to build up our faith in him. Let us therefore submit to the process of testing. The trying of your faith worketh patience. God's bringing us through the ringer. 
He's bringing, he is bringing the church to the ringer right now in some things. We had Brother Scott um, explained our, our financial situation. That doesn't scare me. It, it, it makes me watch and wait and say, God, how are you going to take care of this? Not in a skeptical way, but saying, you know, I've got all my ideas. We've got all our ideas how God could take care of this. What in the world are we still doing here after 70 years? Somebody's been preserving this church. There's so many things that have happened over the years. There's no reason that this building should even still be standing here sometimes, I wonder. But uh, you, you think you got God figured out, and then he comes clear out of left field and provides in a way you never could have expected. And so this is our faith. Those of us who, are, who have been here for a long time, we're looking at God and saying, now, how are you going to do this? <laughs> we're watching and we're waiting. <laughs> uh, God uses testing to build up our faith in him, so we need to submit to the process of God building our faith through patience so that we can become more firmly grounded in him and become more well-equipped to serve him and more well-equipped to represent him and then ultimately more equipped to endure all the trials that come into our lives. Let's ask God tonight to give us that capacity to wait in faith and trust that what he's going to do, he's going to do it in his time and in a way that brings him the glory. Lord, we thank you for that challenge this evening. And Lord, the fact that you want us to grow in you, you want us to learn to endure. In Hebrews, we were we saw that that author was chiding these men, these Hebrews, whoever he was writing to, and saying, you, you're in need of strong meat, but you're hung up on the milk. And I don't believe that's true of this church. I believe that we're, we're capable of handling this strong meat right here. Help us to learn to trust you. In the church life, help us to learn to trust you in our personal lives. Please, Lord, bless this closing few moments. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn in your hymnal to hymn number 377 as we close this evening. 377.